When the topic of discussion is Shakespeare's editors, if it's your field, you know the names Nicholas Rowe, Alexander Pope, Louis Tybalt. But what about Elizabeth Inchbald? What about Charlotte Stopes? What about Laura Valentine? No? Well, keep listening. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Over the centuries, there have been hundreds of editions of Shakespeare's plays. Small, inexpensive schoolbook copies of individual works, massive, leather-bound editions of the complete works, and everything in between. At some point, every one of those editions passed under the eyes of an editor who decided which version of which disputed word would be included, how characters' names would be spelled, whether a Cordo's version was the best to use here or maybe the version in the first folio, and how much would be explained about each of these edits, or how little. While the names of the male editors of many of these Shakespeare editions are famous, up until now there has been little or nothing written about another group of Shakespeare editors, women who, since the 19th century, have labored editing Shakespeare in the shadows of men, sometimes getting no credit at all, and sometimes, as you'll hear, only getting blame. Independent scholar Molly G. Yarn has written a new book titled Shakespeare's Lady Editors that is designed to remedy this oversight. Dr. Yarn's book began as her doctoral thesis at Cambridge University and has unearthed the names and stories of dozens of women previously lost to history. She came into the studio recently for this podcast that we call A Woman's Voice May Do Some Good. Dr. Molly Yarn is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. When you started working on this project, how many forgotten or or lost or overlooked women editors did you expect to find? So at the time, I knew of about 20, maybe, and I was hoping to find another 10. I mean, 10 would have been a good number for me. You know, it was for a PhD dissertation, but of course, I ended up with almost 70. So that was a very different outcome. (laughs) Wow, that's a home run. I mean, that's quite a difference. Did it shock or surprise you that you found so many? It did, yeah. Um, I was actually really surprised to find 70. And honestly, it's very much a champagne problem when you're doing a dissertation to suddenly have too much to write about. Oh, yeah. I would have hated you if I was also going for my my PhD. Yeah. So who was the earliest lady editor of a Shakespeare collection or edition that you found? There are two who are working almost contemporaneously who I would identify as the earliest. One of whom is Elizabeth Inchbald, who was an actress and a writer and was hired to write introductions in London in around 1806-1807. And then the other one is a name that will probably be familiar in some form to a lot of people. Uh, Her name is Henrietta Bodler. And what she did was edit an edition that had all the dirty parts taken out. So when we now say that we Bodlerize a text, that in fact comes from her name. Right. That actually came from a woman. But I want to back up to Elizabeth Inchbald because she, she was pretty well known at the time. Yeah, yeah. Pretty well known. She wrote plays. She wrote some novels. And she was commissioned to give a take on Shakespeare. That was her role. She introduced yeah, the edition. Exactly. Um, the company was looking for a name. Um, and she was known for playing Shakespearean heroines. 
So that was the perspective that she brought to those introductions. Yeah, and that's an interesting part of the story. I mean, it really gets to the meat of what you write about because women who wrote introductions, they weren't considered editors. And in fact, I think you mm-hmm. you say that they were just considered um, being good hostesses to the writings. Mm-hmm. And, and that literary criticism of any kind was just some kind of, considered some kind of diversion or, you know, play. And it was often done by women who, you quote a historian um, who put it, Uh, as women who indulge in various forms of appreciation. Men make, women interpret. Yeah, so throughout the 19th century is when we really see the development of English studies as a field. And the reality is that that was something that was developed for and by women students. You know, men were taught the classics, they were taught Latin and Greek. And so as education for women started to become more common, they sort of, this became sort of the equivalent for them. You know, they weren't expected to learn Latin and Greek, but they studied literature instead in English. And so as it moved into the universities, which was a gradual process over the century, particularly in the more conservative universities, there was sort of a need to make the study of English feel more serious. So they start to apply methods that are used in biblical studies in in Greek and Latin to the study of English. And that's where you start to get this sort of pseudoscientific version of textual editing and this very intense form of literary criticism. So in terms of uh, Elizabeth Inchbald, she she wasn't collating the texts, so that meant she was just a hostess. Right. She was interpreting. Yeah, exactly. She was introducing them and offering her take on them, but not necessarily manipulating the text itself. And this is how, as you say, this kind of editing work becomes so highly gendered. And it seems that there's so many ways to diminish women's contributions. Um, And some of them are really unsavory. For instance, the predilection of male editors to use women secretaries and women typists and often very young women who they hired Mm -hmm. when their wives Mm -hmm. might have gotten tired out assisting them while also you know, having all their children and managing the house. Yeah, I mean, it it really, when I think about particularly textual editing before the digital age, it genuinely took a village. And by village, I mean the people around a man who were unpaid labor for him um, and who, you know, maybe got a thank you in the credits. So it's amazing once you start to dig beneath the known surface of literary history and start to understand how many how many women made this whole thing happen. Yeah, and you could ask how much has changed in some ways. I mean, my, yeah. my, I told my husband about uh, the interview I was going to do with you, and, and, and he said, oh, yeah, what was that movie, The the Prize with Glenn Close, the woman who mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. her husband's yeah. Um Yeah. But it was a real double-edged sword, right, to collaborate with your husband or your brother on these, on, on sure. editing, a, a, a speci- you know, any text, but also Shakespeare text. I mean, how often did that obscure a, a woman's professional contribution? Yeah, pretty frequently. I mean, even when a woman's name was included as one of the editors, people tended to assume that she hadn't really done that much. You know, you see that with someone like Mary Cowden Clark in the mid-19th century who worked with her husband. And um, one reviewer said, we must blame the lady editor for the numerous faults in the text. And then, you you know, you see that even into the early to mid 20th century with Evelyn Simpson, who worked with her husband and a very distinguished textual scholar reviewing it, saying, I think we can safely assume that this is 
mostly the work of you know Dr. Percy Simpson and that Dr. Evelyn was mostly the corrector, but then he sort of rubs salt in the wound a few lines later saying, but it could have been corrected better. I feel like there were a lot of typos missed. Um, <laughs> so women were which, used to almost as scapegoats, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It could, I mean, it could be. It, it, double-edged sword, yeah, is, is exactly the right way to look at it. You you were able to get access, but there were drawbacks to it. You became associated with the man that you were working with in certain ways. You might sort of get associated with his methodology, whether you agreed with it or not. Yeah, so there were a lot of ways that could go wrong, really. Yeah, especially if you're just considered the polisher. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there, you're when you're polishing, there's almost inevitably going to be some unshiny, dull points in a <laughs> yeah. um, to pick apart. So mm-hmm. Elizabeth Inchbald in 1807, and you mentioned Mary Cowden Clark. Uh, she mm-hmm. had an 1860 edition that she yes. edited. Why is this work important to the story? Why is, her, why is she important to the story? Essentially, she is the first woman who's editing the complete works of Shakespeare that we know of. The women who were working before were not doing all of the plays. Although Elizabeth Inchbald's name was included on the title page, essentially she was given credit. Um, Henrietta Bodler published her work anonymously. And then in the years that followed, her brother kept publishing new editions of it and put his name on the title page and claimed credit for it. Oh, that's why which we I think, think was a done. man is, we have a man to uh, blame <laughs> for, for Bodlerizing exactly. Shakespeare. Exactly. And, and remind us what that means to Bodlerize Shakespeare. So to Bodlerize means to expurgate, to take out all the all the dirty bits, all the parts that you, as Henrietta put it, you wouldn't want to read aloud in a family setting, essentially. Right. The, the good bits, a lot of them. Yeah. The fun bits. You know, one of the things you see with expurgation is even a woman editing saying, you know, I took out the comedy bits because those are the bits that the girls wouldn't care about or enjoy or understand it. <laughs> they wouldn't um, get the jokes. We wouldn't get the jokes, exactly. But uh, so Mary Cowden Clark, when she's working in the 1860s, is the first woman both to be editing the complete works that we know of, and she's also the one who is doing so publicly with her name on it most prominently. And she was already well known at the time. She had done a massive work called The Shakespeare Concordance, so she had developed her own level of fame. And so she was the first woman that she knew of who was editing and thought of herself that way. She said, you know, I'm the first, I'm lucky and privileged to be the first woman to be working on our great author's plays. Well, some collections of Shakespeare didn't identify editors by name at all, right? For instance, the Chandos Mm -hmm. uh, Classics Shakespeare series, which Mm -hmm. does turn out to be the work of another woman editor. Yes. So that's coming out around the same time that Mary Cowden Clark is working and is published without an editor's name on it. It just says it's edited with consideration of the best texts, et cetera, et cetera, this sort of marketing language. And there's actually never a name put on the title pages of those, even though they're reprinted for decades. So it's only when you dig and look at how they are identified later, which is by the editor of the Chandos Classics, and then you put that together with other evidence that you realize that the editor of the Chandos Classics was, in fact, a woman named Laura Valentine. Wow, so you had to do some detective work. Yes, yeah, there's a good bit of detective work in here. Um, Yeah, finding Laura Valentine, I think, was one of the highlights of of my process, really. Yeah, it sounds like it, because she she sounds like a swashbuckler, almost, like like the hero of a 19th century English novel. Her father was an admiral, and she was, was she born on a ship? 
So that was sort of the exaggerated version of her biography that went around after her death. Uh, it, it's funny because she's she's not remembered, but she was clearly known at the time. And what I think is the case is that, in fact, her father was a ship captain. And I think it's possible that she did live on a ship, a, a very famous ship being the HMS Victory, which was Lord Nelson's ship, which was at the time docked in Portsmouth Harbor and actually housed sailors and their families on it. And she wrote a novel later where she describes there's a scene where there are children who live on the Victory with their parents, who one of whom is an officer, obviously, and the children are hiding and they jump out at visitors. And, and the whole thing is just so vivid and specific that it honest, that bit of the sort of exaggerated biography, I did end up feeling like, yeah, I think that's true that she did live there for a while. I, I don't think you come up with that uh, oh, and, so the, and describe it like that. So the rest of the admiral having, and being born on the show, that's all kind of a tall tale that I swallowed whole. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I there's definitely a, a, a nugget of truth in there. Yes. Well, is there, since you said that uh, what they called shilling Shakespeare editions, like the Chandos Shakespeare, mm-hmm. were, uh, they never named the editors. Do you think gender was a factor in the decision not to identify Valentine, or it was just common practice? I think it probably was a factor. Some of them did have named editors, and some of them didn't. And Valentine at the time did a lot of work for this publisher, Frederick Warren, who ultimately later is better known for publishing Beatrix Potter. She did a lot of work for him, but most of what she was known for, most of what you know her name was on, were things for children. So I do think that there's some strategy in choosing not to admit that it's a woman doing the work. Because a woman editor, that would just undermine the whole undertaking the seriousness or the, the validity of, of the work. Yeah, I, I think it, it would be strange at that point. You know, Mary Cowden Clark, I, I, I think in many ways, was sort of an exception at the, at the time. You know, she was already quite famous for her Shakespeare work, whereas someone like Laura Valentine, who... You know, she'd written some novels, but she wasn't really famous or anything. Um, But, of course, that's the reality of editorial work is usually not sort of a celebrity name doing the editing. You know, it's somebody who that's their job. They didn't want to make a big fuss over it. They (laughs) wanted to sort of fly under the radar with it. Yeah, and for every Mary Calden Clark, then, there were maybe 10 uh, Laura Valentines, and that's why you found seventy of these mm-hmm. women who've been who've mm-hmm. been lost to the to the field. Well, it looks like things really opened up for lady editors of Shakespeare uh, when publishers started putting out Shakespeare editions for students and um, for a popular audience. Mm-hmm. So, was there just more work in general for editors then, or or was it more acceptable for women? to work in the field of educational publishing because, you know, women, teachers. Yeah, I think both. With the growth of the educational franchise in England at the time, there's suddenly so much more call for editions, and it becomes a huge market for them. So they just needed more people to do the work. And at this time, they also start publishing plays in single editions. So at that point, you need enough people to edit each play. It's not just you're finding somebody who has all of his time for 10 years to put together a complete works edition. You, you're wanting to get these out quickly. You need, you know, a single person to do as you like it and somebody to do midsummer. So there's suddenly a lot of opportunity. And at the same time, you also have a lot more educated women. You know, you're starting to uh, have the women's colleges open up. 
and yeah, as I said earlier, you know, the study of English was always sort of more of a a women's subject at the time. And as you say, women are also sort of more associated with education in that period. And also, these editions were for a less elite audience, and Shakespeare's becoming mm-hmm. less of an elite reading experience, it sounds like. So so did that mean gradually the job of editing Shakespeare, it was okay for women to do it? It didn't have to be a male occupation? Yeah, I think what we see is that the big editions are still being done by men. But these small, cheap, quick editions that are being printed off in great numbers, you start to see more of those being done by women. Yeah. What did scholars think of these school editions? It sounds like they knocked them pretty, pretty hard. Yeah, I think we, you know, when we look back at these editions, we're always looking at them from a modern perspective. And we, and the editorial field, like any field, changes and evolves. You know, and by by the mid 20th century, you have someone huge in the field, um, Fredson Bowers, who was, you know, one of the major textual scholars of the period, saying that they're just, essentially, they're just trash. They're just pointless and lazy work. But, you know, that's always looking back at them. When you're actually looking at them from the perspective of 19th and early 20th century people, you know, a lot of school editors were themselves quite prominent Shakespeareans who were who were also doing this. I collect encyclopedias and and school texts from from mm. the 19th century and and early mm-hmm. 20th century and they're just fascinating. So what were these actually like these school editions? I mean were were they often just reprints from another edition with just, you know text and just just a front, <laughs> two pieces of cardboard or or what? Well, they could be that. There are a lot of them that reuse text from other editions that the publisher owned or that they could get, you know, pay a fee to use. Um, but not all of them. There were some that, you know, I found evidence of the process of doing the text as well as writing the introduction. So it's a it's mixed. But a lot of, you know, they all look quite unassuming. They certainly don't have fancy covers or anything. And a lot of them haven't survived uh, because they were meant for school children and school children, frankly, destroy their school books. Right. They write um, on them. And you re- you yeah. have some photos of, of pages that have been written on the ephemera. It's really kind of cool. Yeah, I, they're, I think they're wonderful and really evocative. I, you know, I started just buying them as I found them while I was working because I realized that, you know, the one I was finding you know, single surviving examples of texts in depository libraries like the British Library or the Cambridge Library where the publishers are required to send a text. But those had never been used, of course. So when I started thinking about, well, how were they actually used? Were they actually used? I I started looking around. And, you know, they're available for sale. You can find them on Biblio or or eBay or wherever. And, um, and and when you look at the ones that are actually marked up, you get a lot more insight into how they were used and, yeah, a really wonderful glimpse into children's lives uh, to me. I, I, I love them. What's your favorite thing that you note or, or uh, doodle that you found in these school editions? Oh, there's a wonderful little bit of doggerel verse that I uh, can't, I couldn't quote it exactly, but... Oh, I happen to have it here. <laughs> and it's great because it ends with... Uh, they were. It starts with they were sitting in the parlor, just contented as could be, when the clock upon the mantel struck the hour of twenty-three. Then she murmured low and whispered, "Can't you take a hint or two? Twenty-three don't mean eleven. It means skidoo, skidoo for you. <laughs> twenty-three skidoo. Oh, it, 
That really takes you back to uh, what year is this? Nineteen <laughs> twenty? Yeah, probably maybe a little earlier. Yeah. I, I I don't have a date on that. So so this was some kid writing down something he'd read somewhere else, or or he just heard this. Uh, I think that one was probably a a girl. Oh, um, uh-huh. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's a thing that exists outside of this or. It it could be a song lyric for all I know, honestly. But oh, that's true. We'll probably get an email from someone yeah. telling us <laughs> who specializes in, in early twentieth century songs. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to the many ways that work was gendered and and that contributed to women editors being written out of the history of Shakespeare scholarship. Mm-hmm. Tell us about deviling. Mm. Deviling is what it was called when people were hired to go to a library and do research for somebody else. And this and this is associated mostly with what was then the British Museum, now the British Library. And um, what would happen would be that scholars who couldn't go there, for example, if somebody is in Chicago and needs something that's at the British Museum, you would hire somebody who lived in London to go and transcribe it for him or take notes on something. And that was a lot of that work was done by women. Um, So um, it's an interesting little uh, sidelight into academic research, another one of those places where you suddenly find all of these women contributing to things that you you wouldn't have otherwise known they were involved with. Yeah, and I'm thinking that so much of scholarship and editing is about details and identifying Mm -hmm. interesting, telling details, God Mm -hmm. in the details, and that Mm -hmm. that's the work... The, the do you call them a deviler? What do you call the devil? De- yeah, deviler, indeed. Yeah, yeah. What uh, the, the devilers a, were doing? Yeah, and um, and this this is sort of not just with devilers, but throughout what we're talking about, a lot of the work that women were doing were sort of seen as these mechanical tasks. You know, things like transcription, where the sort of you sort of think, oh, well, there's nothing to that. But the act of transcription, particularly when you're talking about something in, say, secretary hand from the 17th century or even print from the 16th and 17th century, which has a huge amount of variety in spelling and typography. All of that is an act of interpretation to transcribe something. It required somebody who was looking at it and making decisions about what they were doing and what they were writing down and what they were going to send to you. So it's really a, a major intervention in work at that point. Yeah, and then there was another way to diminish women's scholarly contributions. Um, and that was to call a woman a Shakespeare enthusiast. So tell yes. us about Charlotte Stopes. She she got Charlotte she, she got Stopes. pinned with that with that description. Yes. She's she's a an incredibly interesting figure. Somebody who who worked so hard and was so dedicated to Shakespeare scholarship. And she's interesting outside of that. You know, she was one of the first three women to graduate from Edinburgh at the time when they had first started a program for women. And of course, they weren't given degrees technically, but she was one of the first three to finish that program. And two of those three actually went on to edit Shakespeare. But Charlotte, you know, her husband was basically no good. He, let, he She ended up in debt. She needed to work. And what she did, a lot of it was Shakespeare scholarship. I think it's safe to say that she was both a difficult person herself and somebody who was punished on account of her gender. You know, as any woman knows, it's you're a lot quicker to be called difficult 
when you stand up for yourself as a woman than if you do that as a man. And I think that's part of what happened to her. But yeah, she's working at the end of the 19th century. And as I said, at that time, English is moving into the universities. It's becoming more of an official field of study. And part of that is creating a professional class of people who study literature. And when you create a professional class, you have to, by contrast, create an amateur class. And that was where women were stuck. And Charlotte was one of those who was described as an enthusiast in a big work that she contributed to, just sort of that tireless enthusiast. And you see that phrasing of, you know, person who works with so much zeal, so enthusiastic, you know, it's, it's uh, so condescending with faint praise. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Yeah. Uh, although she didn't have a degree, as you said. So did this happen to men without PhDs too? Did they get called Shakespeare enthusiasts? Uh, no. It, you know, up until the early 20th century, still a lot of the people who were doing it were people who didn't necessarily have what we would now think of as training in literary scholarship. They were part of scholarly societies that sort of did it for fun. But I, I And there are some of them, some particularly eccentric ones, who you can see other people sort of being like, this guy's kind of a crackpot. Um, but I, I think women are much more likely to be deemed enthusiastic amateurs rather than professionals as we move into that, as I say, amateur professional binary. Hmm. Um, I want to pick up on what we were talking about, you were talking about before with Thomas Boulder and Henrietta Boulder and boulderizing mm-hmm. Shakespeare, um, mm-hmm. because all of this concerned the, the genre of the family Shakespeare edition. So tell mm-hmm. us about the family Shakespeare editions. So I, I think this is a really interesting corner of the publishing world. Yeah. So when Henrietta conceived of the family Shakespeare, what she wanted to do was replicate the experience that she had had where her father would read Shakespeare aloud to the family and he would remove the parts that he didn't think were appropriate for the whole family to hear. On the fly. So, yeah, he would just sort of do it as he went. And so she said, well, not everybody has a discerning father to read aloud to them. So I want to create a text that anybody can read in a family setting without provoking blushes is a phrase that was used around that time. Um, Yeah, I think of her as kind of the Phyllis Schlafly of Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so she had published his first edition anonymously, and her brother then did an extended edition about a decade later. And it, that's when it really took off. And and there are so many editions of this published throughout the 19th century. But it also really, it made a lot of people really angry. And, and he was accused of um, the terminology that they use. He was accused of castrating Shakespeare. Hmm. But as I said, at the time, they're moving Shakespeare out of just the province of an educated upper class, really. And the process of doing that had prompted them to think, well, should we be letting them read all of these things? You know, there's there's some stuff in here that we know is quote-unquote dirty. Should we be letting our wives and children have open access to this? Yeah, and it's certainly true that a lot of people were introduced to Shakespeare in the home. And so mm-hmm. there, so I can see how there'd be a, there was a real um, a need for family additions. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds like the idea of a family Shakespeare lumps women and children together, as if women are children. 
Absolutely. And that's something that I, I write about and, and I've noticed is that there's sort of a similar sense of both protectiveness, but also repressiveness that you see when men are talking about allowing access to literature for women and children and for working class people. Those are the communities that they were concerned about what they would allow them to read and that they felt that they needed to control what those people read. So you see quite similar sort of rhetoric and marketing around editions for women, children, and, and working class people. So so stepping back and, and looking back over your whole book, what kind of connections or similarities do you draw between these women editors, lady editors of Shakespeare? So I think there are some interesting similarities that you see. You know, each of them is an individual and each of them has their own circumstance and life story. But one thing that you see is that a lot of them are teachers. Um, and that didn't necessarily mean that they taught in universities. You know, a lot of them taught in elementary and secondary schools. Probably 80% of them never got married, you know, an even smaller number had children. Um, and a lot of that has to do with well, changing demographic things at the time, but also, you know, if you were a woman who, woman who had a post at a university, if you got married, you would lose that post. So a lot of them were sort of were more scholarly women who stayed unmarried so that they continued to work in academia. So this um, was the late 19th century and early 20th. You would still you couldn't be married if you had if you were teaching at a university. It was it wasn't necessarily a. Um, an official rule, but it's called, you know, it's the, the marriage bar was uh, very much an unspoken thing. If you, and, and, you know, you see somebody like Evelyn Simpson, who I mentioned earlier, who had a post at, at Oxford, I believe at the time, and she got married and gave up that post. It, it goes on into the mid century. Because your husband um, would support exactly. you and you're taking up exactly. a job from a man, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's a whole interesting topic in itself and, and something that it, it affected a lot of women editors. For sure. I mean, the other thread that you pick up on is that many of these women had same-sex partnerships with other women. They mm -hmm. were gay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they helped or, each other out, it sounds like. Yeah, a lot of them had same-sex partnerships. And while we can't necessarily sort of be definitive about the nature of those, it's something that is quite common around the women's colleges that are growing during the late 19th century. Um, it, they were called sometimes Boston marriages in because they were associated with Wellesley College, which was outside of Boston. You know, all of these women who lived in, in partnership with other women. So you see a lot, a number of women editors who had lifelong female partners. And yeah, you and you also see broader networks of support among academic women developing, and specifically among some women editors as well. Um, you see women who were taught by women editors becoming editors themselves. You see one woman helping another get a job as an editor. So you, you're definitely seeing a sort of developing sense of camaraderie and support. I've got to say, this was... Mm, uh, a light at the end of a long tunnel that made me really angry reading your book. <laughs> how, how did you feel at, at the end of your of your research? I certainly there's there's definitely a, a sense of frustration when you look back and see how much is has been obscured or lost. 
there's a whole field of conversation. There's a whole a whole uh, area of conversation that we could have about archives and and how we feel about archival loss. But I certainly felt that when I would look and try to find information about somebody and would be unable to really find almost any record that that person had existed other than their name on a title page of this little edition of As You Like It or whatever. So I, I felt loss and frustration to a certain degree, but I also just felt amazement and awe at what they had achieved um, and that it had survived in any way. And I felt like I, I owed it to them to honor their work and, and to record it and to let people know that they existed and that they did this. Well, you completely accomplished that. And you were also just lovely to talk with today. Thank you so much for doing, doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Dr. Molly G. Yarn, an independent scholar living in Athens, Georgia, is the author of Shakespeare's Lady Editors, a new history of the Shakespearean text. It was published by Cambridge University Press and released in the United States in 2022. Dr. Yarn was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, A Woman's Voice May Do Some Good, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Andrew Fair at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio in New York. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's a really important way to get out the word about the work we're doing here, especially to people who don't know about the podcast yet. Thank you so much for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.